Uh, I don't know if you, like me, were fortunate to know and have a lot of opportunity to be with your grandparents. In particular, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. And she was a lovely, lovely Christian woman who died at the age of 93 with a smile on her face um, because she knew exactly where she was and where she was going. But she used to come out with those annoying little phrases that you never quite understand at the time. Do you remember the one? This is one of hers that you all all know is patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom in a woman and never in a man. To which I would reply, well, if it's never in a man, Gran, why are you telling me? I'm not good at waiting, as Gillian will tell you. If I've asked her for something and she doesn't do it straight away, it's terrible in our house. It's terrible. Then I get grumpy, particularly if I'm hungry, because being diabetic, I get what they call hangry, where I get irritable if I've not had... And if I need some sugary something, I could be quite short-tempered and and quite easily impatient. But the world isn't particularly good at waiting these days with our instant text messaging and all those things. I mean, you don't have to wait for something to go through the post anymore, do you? You just click a button, bang, it's there. We have instant coffee because we can't wait the 30 extra seconds it takes for it to brew. We have instant noodles, an abomination before the Lord. (laughs) Dreadful things. I don't know what they put in them, but it isn't food. Why were they invented? Because we are impatient and our lives are so full of doing stuff that we can't be bothered to wait. God's timing, of course, is very different to ours. And God's timing can lead us to feel frustrated. Waiting is a part of our faith journey, isn't it? But God knows the perfect moment, the kairos moment, the timing of what should happen when in his plan is perfect. And Mary and Joseph had been waiting. We're 40 days since Christmas and only 320 odd till the next one. I've put the sprouts on already. Don't want them to be tough, do we? But um, 40 days since Christmas. And there's a reason for that, because the law determined that there was a period of purification after a woman gave birth to a son of 40 days before she could be declared clean and enter the temple. If it was a girl who was born, she had to wait 60 days. Don't ask me why, but those were the laws. And it wasn't just the mother that was unclean for 40 days, it was the child as well. So it was Jesus too who couldn't go straight up and celebrate. There was a time and a place and it was set in the law. Of course, Jesus technically didn't need to be purified. We're talking here about the only child ever born on this world who was already pure and perfect. This is God in human form. But from the very outset, he took on the burden of sinfulness. He took on the weight of the law for us. Somebody explained this to me the other day. Why don't we follow the law? Because we are in Christ. And Christ has fulfilled every element of the law for us. So us in him, it's fulfilled on our behalf. Isn't that wonderful? It's not taken away. It's not disposed of. It's fulfilled in Christ. 
And Christ's parents, Jesus' parents, were devout and obedient people. They wanted to do what was right and they acted in accordance with the law. They were just like every other person in that vicinity. They weren't one of the leading parties. Well, they weren't Pharisees or Sadducees or anything like that. They just wanted to do the best they could. And that meant following the law. My first question here highlighted is, just how devoted are we sometimes to the things that we know are good and right? And how far will we go out of our way? When there's something good on television, I'm inclined to watch that rather than read the Bible, which I know I should be doing because it's good for me. It's the same as if I didn't eat. Reading the word of God is just as important. It's more important. So they came to consecrate Jesus to God. Interesting that, isn't it? Bringing God to God. And they were poor people. This is before the wise men visited and, and landed in their hands a huge quantity of great wealth. They were desperately poor. We sometimes have pictures of Mary and Joseph riding on a donkey to Bethlehem, don't we? They couldn't have afforded a donkey. No way. They were poor. And we know they were poor because they didn't bring a lamb as an offering. They had to bring two offerings. One was a sin offering, the blood of which would be the substitute for their own and would be sprinkled around the altar. And they had to bring a burnt offering, a thank offering, which would be burnt in its entirety on the altar and offered to God. They were bringing an alternative didn't bring the lamb. They bought the, what's called the poor offering. Two birds, two doves, two pigeons. We don't need to bring offerings to the temple to be freed of our sin. We don't need to bring specific gifts to God to say thank you. Our sin has been dealt with through Jesus, hasn't it? But we are called upon to make sacrifices, not in that way. But I wonder, what are we prepared to sacrifice? Are we prepared to, what, to give up another episode of our favourite television programme in order to minister to a friend? Are we truly prepared to give up ourselves in sacrifice? A couple of weeks ago, I preached a, a first time for me, a Methodist covenant service. Um, we don't do such things as such in the United Reformed Church, although it's a tradition that seems to be growing. But there's a prayer which begins, I am no longer my own, but yours. And then proceeds to say things like, take me where you want me to take me and, and do with me as you will. There's our sacrifice. That's what God loves. He delights in a broken and contrite heart given to him in service. They bought a gift because of the need to redeem the firstborn. Ever since the Passover, when all of the firstborn of the Jews were saved because of the blood put on the door, and all of the firstborn of the Egyptians were lost, God said, the firstborn male is mine. And he had to be redeemed from serving God in that way. So they paid for Jesus to be free, although, of course, Jesus couldn't have been more devoted to God if we'd tried. 
This was a very significant moment in history. Israel had been waiting for so long, longing for God to act, and he was seemingly silent for such a long time. The Romans had been in power and controlling that place for such a long time, and people just wondered what on earth the future held. But there were those in Jerusalem who were tuned in to God, like the radio tuning. I love that analogy that we can be out of tune with God and we can tune back in. There's two of these people in our reading, isn't there? And they were waiting patiently and their patience was about to be rewarded big time. My next question here is how patient are we at allowing God to be God and to do things in the time and in the way that he chooses without getting annoyed. There's a book on my shelf, it's about our reformed faith tradition and it's called Letting God Be God. It's not always easy to do. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. There would have been some preceding news that might have given him a hint that his waiting was about to be over because there would have been quite a lot of publicity surrounding the birth of John, John the Baptist. That very strange thing when his father came out and couldn't speak. He was a priest in the temple and people would have known about this. Did you hear about John's father? Or did you hear about the priest up at the temple? Can't speak. Can't speak. And his child's been born and now he can. And he goes and calls it John. He isn't even a family name. There would have been quite a lot of that going on. And then, of course, there was that weird thing went on in Bethlehem, which came to the city as well. You remember the shepherds? The shepherds, that was an amazing moment as well. So all this buzz was going on around. What's happening? Simeon, though, didn't need people's gossip and buzzing of news around because he had the direct line. He was directly in contact with God. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that something was going to happen so amazing that this special event would happen in his lifetime. Well, I wonder sometimes, don't we, is, is the new kingdom of God, you know, is the re new creation, is the end of this world going to happen in our lifetime? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I sometimes put on Facebook after we've heard some disastrous news about our, our shift in, in the world or whatever, I sometimes put on Facebook, if you're thinking of coming back, Lord, now would be a good time. Of course, that's by my standards, not by, by God's, but it, it seems interesting that, that we ask that question. Simeon was moved by the Spirit and he went into the temple courts. Now, he knew how to be led by the Spirit. We're often more resistant to that. He knew how to hear God's voice and how to surrender to God's call and that his wait was about to end. A highlighted question, how in tune are we, God, are we with God? The Spirit of God is always in us all the time. That's the difference. When the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, the Spirit came to each one of us in turn and stays. But are we constantly aware of that? Are we constantly practising the presence of God, being aware of it? I was given a book at my confirmation years ago by a kitchen cook from a monastery. 
It was called Brother Lawrence. And he had one of the tiresome jobs in the monastery, which was to prepare the food. And if you imagine, there's quite a lot of monks in the monastery. And you know that dreadful moment when somebody says, we're having chips. And they empty the bags of potatoes in front of you and hand you a blunt knife. There's not a great deal of pleasure in it. But what he did was to learn to identify the fact that God was with him always and to delight, and even in those dull moments, in the presence of God. Wouldn't it be good for us all to do that? Simeon took Jesus in his arms, and that's a wonderful moment of intimacy. Um, a, a priest friend of mine, when he baptises children doesn't hold them for fear of dropping them. He asks the parents or godparents to hold the child over the front and font while he pours water on. But this was a really intimate moment, taking the child in his hands. He loved God and he loved this child, although he'd never met him before. This was a patient man meeting for the first and perhaps the last time his saviour. That was the depth of the relationship he had with God. And that's the depth of the relationship that God desires for us all to have. Sovereign Lord, he says, eyes raised. As you've promised, my eyes have seen your salvation. He'd hung on that promise of God, not losing heart, not being impatient. And now it was happening. There are so many promises on which we can hang and on which we can rely. I wonder how we do hang on the promises we find in the Bible. How hard do we rely on the promises of God? In the wartime, in the First World War, it was quite famous, and you can still buy them online. To give your sweetheart going to war a box decorated in whatever way, which contained little scrolls of paper, and on each of those pieces of paper was printed or written one of the promises we find in the Word of God. And the box came with a little pair of tweezers because there's a lot of promises in there and they were crammed in. And the idea was that in the heat of that terrible situation that those soldiers found themselves in, they might, in the trenches there, pull out just one of these scrolls and open it up and rest on that promise, that reassurance. As I said, there's over 3,000 promises of God in the Bible. And there are there for us. And God won't break even a single one of them. God never says anything he doesn't mean. He will see them all fulfilled and completed. But sometimes we have to be patient. What did Simeon recognise in Jesus? Well, he looked at this child and he said... He will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. The Gentiles were in there from the beginning of God's plan. He wanted to bring light and salvation to all creation. And they're mentioned here. Through Israel comes the salvation of all. And light, of course, is a powerful image. Uh, it's called candle mass because it was at that season that candles were brought into the church to be blessed so they could be used throughout the rest of the year in worship. Um, and uh, if you've ever been to some of the higher churches of our brothers and sisters in Christ where candles are part of their tradition, um, you can be amazed at how many candles they can get through. It must have taken a sort of small lorry delivery for some of the churches I've been to. We don't really make that much of it, but that lit candle 
can be a real important symbol to so many of the presence of God. And his parents marvelled at what was said about Jesus. How others, as they met this tiny child, recognised him as more than just another child born. There must have been thousands, hundreds of thousands maybe of infants brought to the temple each year. But they recognised that there was something different here. This was God's son. But they weren't told that beforehand, but by God. It must have been a great assurance and blessing to Mary and Joseph to hear people who they'd never met before take hold of their child and say, this is the one. This is the special moment we've been waiting for. Here is God's son, our saviour. Have you ever had one of those revelation moments when somebody comes up to you and says, I don't know why God wants me to tell you this. And then they tell you something and you think, how on earth did they know that? How on earth did they know that that's what I needed to hear right now? Or you open up the Bible and the words that you've read many, many times before suddenly scream out at you a new and reassuring message. Or... The other challenging one is when you're listening to somebody preach and it seems as if there's no one else in the room but you. Sometimes that happens to me when I'm preaching and you suddenly hear what you're saying and you think, this is as much for me as anybody else. I wonder how we capture those moments when they happen, how we really take them to heart. And how we pursue them with God. Somebody once suggested that every time you prayed for something, you should stick a piece of paper somewhere randomly in your Bible. And then when you encounter that piece of paper with the note on in future, you can then look at how God has worked in that situation. Maybe we should do that with these words of blessing that we have from God. Just tuck them back in. Live with them, yes. But then in a few years' time, when you happened again to be asked to preach on the book of um, Obadiah, it happened. (laughs) It's a very short book, but I was asked to preach on it here by Keith, if you remember. And I'd never read it before. But, you know, tuck it in there. Maybe one day it'll happen again. And you'll look at it and you'll say, Lord, you've really made a difference here. And I I wasn't really aware of it until now. So Simeon brings out the blessings. But he also brings out the warnings. This child is destined to cause cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He divided people in their opinion and in their view of him. There's a resonance there with a certain nation that we live in, isn't there? A division of how we respond to certain events. But for him... People responded either with acceptance or with vehement rejection. Look at Peter and Judas. Peter, yes, he did deny Christ, but he came back and he repented because he knew that this was the Messiah and he repented. Judas, things didn't go the way he was expecting. They didn't happen quick enough. So he got frustrated and he rejected Jesus and his way. 
And either side of Jesus as he hung on that cross were two thieves. One who heaped abuse on Jesus and the other who realised who he was dealing with reached out and in that moment found salvation in that dying moment. And he will be a sign that will be spoken against. The words specifically say he will be a target at which people will aim their their um, opposition. I was on a, an online forum the other day and I was engaged in a, a, a relatively heated interaction involving a number of people about a particular political issue and all was going fairly well. We, you know, we were coming to a point where we knew we weren't going to agree but we could agree, disagree and when somebody posted, oh, I see you're one of those God-botherers, which means you're irrational and nothing you say is of any value. We will be the target of rejection because we are part of Jesus' family. We're part of his plan. But we're told to rejoice in that, aren't we? And then he said to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The future's not going to be easy. Perhaps she will be struggling when she sees the rejection and the suffering. Perhaps she experienced that more than anyone else. When you see your children suffer, it really hurts. I could tell you about some situations in my own family life where that was the case, but I might end up in tears because it hurts so much when you see your children suffer. And for her, imagine standing at the foot of the cross. And the question that that raises is, do we accept that suffering is part of the journey, but it's not the destination? There was another person in that temple. We're told less about her, but we're told some important facts. She was a prophetess. She was was called Anna, and she was very old. I like that. You know, you're not supposed to ask a lady her age, are you? You're not supposed to ask a gentleman his weight either, unless you happen to be a clinical nurse. That's a different story. But I I heard recently that this passage came up at a Bible study at the church that I'm a member of. And two of the people there were utterly delighted that right at the start and at the centre of God's wonderful journey of the life of Jesus, there were two older people playing a vital role. God has an ongoing purpose for us all. We're never too old to be excluded from his plan, from his working. My grandmother, I've told you about before, once you got onto her prayer list, you were stuck there forever. She would not stop praying for you. She prayed for her doctor, her postman who then retired. You know, it just went on. Hers was a calling and ministry of prayer. And when she died, I said to my aunt, we've got a lot of of responsibility to take on here because we don't know how much our families benefited from her prayers. So if you're feeling a bit frail today, God has so much that we can do throughout our lives. And again in her speaking, Anna revealed specific understanding of the nature of the child. 
She too had God-given insight. She'd been in the temple long enough. She knew about God. She prayed. She fasted. She had the close sort of walk with God that we all long for. And she recognised what God was doing. I love it when the Bible gives us names. We know that Jesus means God saves. It's the same as Joshua. And here we're given four names in this passage. Simeon, which means he has heard. How appropriate. Anna, which is the Greek form of Hannah, means favour or grace. She knew what grace meant, that free gift of God. She was the daughter, I love this, of Phanuel, the Greek form of Penuel. It means facing toward God. And she was a daughter of the tribe of Asher, which means happy and blessed. She, in her family and in her experience, was blessed with God's favour and she was focused on God. And that speaks to this moment in the Bible, in the history, in the story. It's a God-centred moment where everyone involved is looking in toward God. All of this is now coming together in this time and place. But like all things, it's a moment. Because after that, Mary and Joseph took Jesus home. And Jesus grew up in the context of an ordinary human family. As a tiny child, he didn't really know, because he didn't have the human capacity to know who he was. He wasn't there sitting there, God is sort of in a human body going, oh, I know what's going on, you know, like looking through the lens of the eyes and knowing things beyond. When he grew up, a toddler, a five-year-old, yes, he shone and we saw him, but he still came to understand his nature and purpose so that when he was old enough, he was ready to serve God. Human beings do something rather odd. Unlike other animals, most animals are adults within two years of their birth and some much, much, much quicker than that. Our budgie may only be a few months old, but he's at the age where should he want to make new little budgies and should we introduce him to a lovely lady budgie, he would be more than well equipped for it. But human beings, that doesn't happen. We stop growing into adults at a certain pace because there is so much to know about being a human being in order to survive adulthood and then we proceed later on don't we in life if we just went at the same rate we'd be an adult by the age of two can you imagine trying to live as an adult in this world with the understanding of a two-year-old Jesus in placing himself in the hands of that family submitted to all of that growth and that challenge and that time of change. And the question that raises for me is, how are we continuing to grow in faith and grace just as Jesus did, as we're told? So there's good news and there's challenge in this reading. The challenges and the good news. Keep God at the centre. Be attentive to God's call and his guidance and his presence at all times. Get in tune with the spirit. Be patient. Don't doubt your worth in God. Rest on God's promises and serve him with devotion.
Amen. And before we sing our final hymn, let's just bring some prayers. I'll offer some time as well to you if you want to pray for anything specific, but let's just pray together now. Lord, we do want to learn from this reading, from what you have had to say to us this evening. We do want you to be at the centre of our lives. We want to be aware of you working in every moment, to be attentive to your voice and your guidance, to be in tune with your spirit and transformed by that spirit. We want to learn to be patient with you and with life. And Lord, even when we encounter challenges and suffering, we want to remember at that moment that this is a part of the journey, not the destination. We want to recognise how much you value us and to rely on your promises and to serve you with devotion. But we can only achieve these things in you and empowered by you. So this evening, Lord, enable us to make a small step in that ambitious direction and each day to seek to move closer to you. Mm. And Lord, we pray today for our nation, a nation which we see is divided and where hateful comments and rejection of people seem to be a worrying trend in certain places and quarters. And we are looking to the future with a sense of concern as we enter into the unknown. Whether Friday came to us as a, a moment of great relief and joy or as a moment of great disappointment, we recognise that that has happened. And Lord, we place our nation in your hands. May we be a nation that reflects you. Lord, bring about a change in our nation that will turn us back like the name of Faneuil to be looking towards you for our future. May we be a light to other nations. Preferably, Lord, a light of hope, not a warning light. But we put our nation in your hands. May faith in you be revived. We pray too for those today who are suffering as a result of the coronavirus, those who have lost loved ones, those who struggle with the condition, and those who work to treat and care for those people and to prevent others from contracting this illness. Lord, make their work fruitful and effective. Bring relief and bring peace in times of sorrow.